How far have we come? 50 years ago, Stephanie Shirley set up a business from her dining room table with £6, grew into a huge corporation. Now Dame Stephanie Shirley looks back on her life and her leadership and talks to us about how far we really have come. Hi, this is Penny DeVolk. Welcome to Grit in the Oyster, a conversation about how we navigate our careers, our organizations, our lives as women leaders. Exploring its challenges, learning from others, sharing best practice. An opportunity to step out of the fray for a bit, to help you tune out some of the noise and tune into being the best leader you can be. Hello from Henley on Thames, England. Uh, today I'm speaking with Dame Stephanie Shirley, a successful IT entrepreneur and ardent philanthropist. Dame Stephanie arrived in Britain as an unaccompanied child refugee in 1939, and at 30 years of age, she started what became Zanza PLC, now part of the Sopra Group. She did this at her dining room table with six pound. In her 25 years as chief executive, she created a leading business technology group, pioneering new working practice, really changing the position of professional women, a veritable STEM pioneer. She served on boards such as Tandem Computers, John Lewis Partnership, AA Technology, and her philanthropy is based on a strong belief in giving back to society. And her philanthropy focuses on IT and autism. Her autistic son Giles died aged 35 in 1998. Dame Stephanie, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. Oh, it's lovely to have you here. So 50 years ago, you decided to start your own software business. How did that happen? Well, I was a lapsed mathematician and I discovered that I wasn't really going to be able to contribute to the world as a mathematician. But luckily, computers came along and so I started working in the computing industry, but again found myself sort of beating my head against that invisible barrier that women find. And eventually, almost overnight, decided I'd had enough sexism, I wasn't going to battle it anymore through bash, bashing through or round or under, I was going to go elsewhere. And so I decided to set up my own software company, which at that time was considered absolutely ridiculous because software was given away free with mm -hmm. the hardware. I mean, mm -hmm. nobody could sell software. It's like selling air. And um, it's... It, it really grew from that um, feminist concept of wanting a company, an organization that I would like to work for, that I knew lots of other women would like to work for. And when you ask women what they want, it's invariably um, work-life balance. Mm -hmm. Um, and flexibility, and we provided flexibility in the extreme. I'll go into detail mm. if you really want me to. Um, but it, I, it became a, um, a social business. It, I measured success not only in the profit or lack of it in the many early years, um, but also uh, primarily on how many women we were employing, the employment policy, minute number one in the company's annals was to, um, it is the company policy to provide jobs for women with children. Wow. This was so that was a primary objective. Primary objective. And then as the years went by, um, we realized that um, uh, 
there were quite a lot of women looking after disabled partners mm -hmm. or elderly parents. And so that changed to um, jobs for women with dependents. But more particularly, as we learned the importance of, of training, yes. uh, it became careers for women with dependents. And then, 13 years from when we started, in 1975, um, Equal Opportunities legislation came mm -hmm. in in Britain, and so it, it was illegal to have our pro-female policies. And um, lovely example, really, of unintended consequences. But we, my woman's company, 297 of the first 300 staff were female. My woman's company, we had to let the men in. <laughs> and how <laughs> was that? <laughs> Well, the first few were actually disastrous because we had no idea how to recruit men. We right, were we, yeah. used to recruiting and selecting and training women. And it, it, we got very, very uh, fooled by the sort of overconfidence of, right. of the men that we were not used to. Interesting. <laughs> fooled by the overconfidence of men. So by 1985, I think you had about a 1,000 people working for you. Tell me a bit about the transition that happened in 1987, I think it was. What were the sort of the, the growth transitions that you were managing? Well, we were pulling ourselves up really with our, by our fingernails. It was a slow and quite painful. There was a recession in Britain in the 70s. Uh, we only just survived. Um, what happened in the 80s, I think, was that I started to... Um, realized that the bigger the company grew, uh, the less an entrepreneur like me uh, really enjoyed it, the less I had to contribute. I started to bring in professional management. Right. Um, I thought of taking myself off on an MBA course and then realized that the childcare possibilities were just too, too complex to, to deal with. So I was left really, as I'm now glad, as the entrepreneur and the ideas person, when we did personality testing, I obviously came out very, very different to all the other clever yes. people I was employing. But I had this um, drive, really, um, desire to work with intellectual people. Um, and I recruited people who were much brighter than me, much more focused on the technology. Um, and between us, we, we managed to write some very interesting software uh, on major contracts okay. for Concord and NATO and um, really quite exciting. Yeah, that's fantastic. And you, you referenced before flexible working, which still today, even though it's legislated for, can be incredibly difficult for women to make work and is a real career stopper for many women to ask for flexible working and for men. I cannot believe, Penny, that 50 years on oh, you're still talking in these terms because these are the sorts of things that I was saying in yeah. the early 60s. But, um, you know, you can give flexibility in different ways and my company offered it in um, whether it was employment or consultancy, freelancers, uh, whether it was part-time, office-based, home-based, uh, hot desked, uh, job shares, mm. all the flexibility. So that how people wanted of. to work. Yes. And one of the big um, barriers to that is managers go, well, we can't see them. So how do we know they're really working? 
And yet you were completely trusting of the people that worked for you and very clear about what their deliverables were. What advice would you have for managers who today say, unless I can see them, I'm not sure they're delivering for me? I think as a manager, we need to be able to have metrics that are not just people's presence in the office. Um, I think we can have um, measures of work done. We can even remunerate by work done. Mm. Uh, we, we do that to a certain extent with our bonus systems. Uh, we have to have um, a, a sort of leadership style that um, really understands what the team is doing, um, that everybody is not working at the same performance level every day. Um, but the, without trust, you, you land yourself with a massive bureaucracy um, that is costly to business. And when you do have trust and faith in people, and I don't think I've ever achieved anything without having that faith in somebody, um, without that faith in people, you, you, you really don't get very far as a leader. Mm. Mm. And it's, it's mutual. I think you, you're only a leader if people follow you. Mm -hmm. um, and it's interesting the leaders that other leaders admire. That's right. Um, so gradually over the years, I turned it from being a clever technician, I was quite right, mm -hmm. um, to being a fairly incompetent supervisor, <laughs> fairly incompetent manager. But when I got beyond that, I, I found I did really enjoy um, leading a company and it got quite company. big. Yeah, it certainly did get very big. Um, in your book, Let It Go, which I gather is going to be made now into a film, That's a movie, right. it's fantastic, you describe two life-defining ideas. And I'm wondering if you could expand on what they are and how they influenced your career and your life. My life has been driven by my traumatic childhood. Yes. And when you look at the life patterns of... of Many leaders, they have had traumatic childhood. They've been ill, they've lost parents, they've been orphaned very young. In my case, I was a child refugee and came over from Nazi Europe in 1939 and was fostered by some lovely, loving foster parents mm -hmm. in the Midlands of England and have become really their child in all but birth. That experience and it was a two and a half day journey but it was an experience of of, of enormous change new family new food new new language yes. new nationality um, has been tremendously helpful to me in, in, a, in a sick sort of way in that having survived that I realized that I could deal with change mm. and actually I've learned to love change I like change I like to do new things I like to make new things happen and that's very helpful in a, in a high-tech career um, so really that was quite a turning point in my life mm. that is um, as strong today as, as it was 80 years ago and you can look back on that and see that that experience or as traumatic as it was has actually served you well I think it's served me well in my motivation. I, I sort of knew that I needed, I wanted to make the life that was saved worth saving. Yeah. And so I turned into quite a serious person. Uh, I don't fritter my days away. And uh, I know that I have to do what is in me to do. Mm. Um, I also became a patriot. I mean, I love this country, England. 
uh, with a passion that perhaps only someone who has lost their human rights mm. uh, is ever going to feel. Um, so it's really made my personality and driven my life. Mm. And you take nothing for granted. Mm. I take goodwill for granted mm. until it's spoiled. Yes. And that's important. I mm. think. So that's a good default to go to. Other life-defining moments for you? We talked about flexibility and the reason that women are desperate for flexibility is that we, many of us are combining it with childcare. Yes. And our first child, and who became our only child, um, turned out to be profoundly autistic mm. and was an extremely vulnerable, difficult child um, to uh, care for. And the need to provide for him physically was probably the first time I really ever got interested in the money that the business yes. could give me. Yeah. Uh, but I then started to be motivated. I needed 10 million for him. Yeah. And um, it um, that has driven my life. And I've become... Um, the material things are not terribly important for me, but I, I, I've become much more sensible about money. Mm. Mm. Um. Of all the skills, you were a very gifted mathematician and you talk about your creativity and actually your leadership that you stepped into. Of all the skills that contributed to your success, was there one or two that you think served you best in terms of your capability? Penny, let me just pick you up on this. I wasn't a great mathematician. I just loved it. I still love it. But the, the idea that I was going to be the world's greatest mathematician and solve something called Fermat's last theorem, that got knocked on the head pretty early on. How early? Um, da, 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 Mid-twenties. Okay. Uh, mathematicians peak pretty early anyway. I think it goes back to that um, refugee start mm. um, because people remember entrepreneurs like me for our successes. But in fact, we've had lots of failures. Mm. Um, I could list them and we'd, we'd be here for the next hour. Um, but the, the ability to cope with failure, the ability, the resilience to, to realize that this is a learning opportunity that you need to sort of harvest from your errors and, 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 and get something valuable out of them. That I think is, is part of my, I mean, I'm a bit academic and I want, I want to learn, but I want the organization became a learning organization. Mm. And we were pretty practical stuff. Um, so I think my innovation comes from the fact that I didn't go to university. Nobody had taught me what one wasn't supposed to do in business. Yes. So I just went ahead and did yeah. it. What was your greatest challenge? Oh, the sexism. I mean, it really was quite difficult in those days. You would stand with your back to the wall so that People couldn't pinch your bottom. It, 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 you know, this is when you were trying to sell a million pounds worth of software. It was, it was, it was nasty. One was when I first came to London, which is quite a, you know, major multicultural city now, but it was then pretty rough compared to the quiet countryside childhood that I'd had. When I came to London, I was physically frightened most right. of the time, mm. and um, women. I think have ceased to have that physical fear. Mm. We now have sexual fear, and the men have sexual fear of us as well, whether yes. they can easily be misinterpreted. Uh, so, how are we moving forward? Or has what do you the think? pendulum swung? Yes, yeah.
That's very, that's very interesting because you talked also in your book. Is is that why you, in terms of the sexism, in terms of your being taken seriously, is that why you um, called yourself Steve? Well, I wasn't getting any response at all to my business development letters. You know, which sign I sent off to everybody who was looking for software development, mm. and um, my dear husband suggested that I. One of the problems was this double feminine of Stephanie and then Shirley, my marital name, yes. and um, suggested that I use the family nickname of Steve. And so I started writing the same le letters to the same sorts of prospects, uh, signing them as Steve Shirley. Yes. And surprise, surprise, you I, began to get, <laughs> I began to get meetings. <laughs> and I've got a decent story to tell. So once okay, I was there. that sounds great. Um, is there anything you wished you had learned earlier when you look back at your career? I mean, I always say to people going into business, you really have to master marketing, mm. you have to master finance, and you have to get international experience. Um, I didn't have the financial side. I was scared of the money. I kept it very simple. I managed as a cash business. Um, I ran it um, in, in a very sort of amateur way because I didn't want to use financial skills. It was 25 years before yeah. we had a finance director. Okay. And that's maybe a very feminine thing, but looking back, I wish I'd had the sense to get those skills in mm. Mm. earlier. So when you look at your career and work, what does work mean to you? What has work meant to you in your career and your life? Well, it is my life, Penny. Um, that's what I do. I measured, I measure myself by my professional activities. Um, I, for a variety of reasons, um, it is important to me. But um, as I grow older, I realise I'm very like my father, who was also a workaholic. And I'm told that today. Women don't like to be told about workaholism, but I, I just enjoy my work so much. Yes. that It's not just something I do when I'd rather be doing something else. That's yes. what I do. That's what I wish I'd got more time for. Okay. You say in your book that leadership is about giving. Can you expand on that? Giving is almost a reciprocal relationship. And part of leadership is that balance between the innovator, the leader, the chairman, mm. and those who follow, who aspire perhaps to leadership or just want a job. Mm. And unless you give of yourself, and it's, it's, it's much easier to give money than give of yourself, you need to give of your personality, of your time and your energy. Um, I call myself a, a venture philanthropist because um, if I define philanthropy as being sort of strategic giving where you're trying to remedy some ill in the world. Mm. Um, Tell me more about philanthropy and what that means to you. Well, let me define philanthropy as being separate from charity. Because mm -hmm. um, when we give some money to somebody in the street or something like that, that's a generous act of charity. 
But it's not until we start thinking, what is this person doing? Why isn't he in employment? Why isn't she in a hostel? Um, That we start thinking like a a philanthropist um, and to try and make the general... I I think philanthropists are always wanting to make the world a better place. Um, they also, we also, I think, want to make, um, to leave our mark, something that says, I was here in the mm. world. So philanthropy is, is not a mes- question of how much money you have to give away, but how you give it. Um, I work very hard um, to give it away without patronising the beneficiaries. Right. And I th- I'm sure that's because I was patronised as a as a child. Aren't you lucky to be alive? You know, well, you don't really say that to a six-year-old child. Um, but nevertheless, um, you, you, you learn that if you give in a, um, with a generous spirit, mm-hmm. with a, not just meanly, not just counting, not, not dribbling the money out, but, but to give more than is expected, mm. to give with, with generosity of spirit, um, you get so much more. I mean, I have a wonderful lifestyle uh, because I'm involved with projects that I uh, am part of. Mm. Um, I, some of them I started, many of them I started, mm. um, but um, I, I really welcome the the richness of life, um, and, and I always say, actually, the more I give away, the richer my life becomes. Yes, yeah. We've started to talk about women, and I'm wondering what has changed the most for women at work, in particular women leaders, that you might have observed since you started in your career. I'm desperately disappointed, Penny, that things haven't moved faster and further. Um, Certainly the things that I was struggling with 50 years ago, 60 years ago, um, are past. I mean, I was battling with legislative matters uh, that women were not allowed to, some of them were well-intentioned, but women were not allowed to work down a coal mine. We were not, I was not allowed to work in, in the stock exchange. I wasn't allowed to drive a bus or fly an aeroplane. Um, I even had to ask my husband's permission to open the company bank account. Mm. I mean, women were very much second-class citizens and in anything financial. But that was legislative stuff, and I was breaking down those doors and holding them open for the young women of today. What they have to do now is deal with some of the cultural issues, and we mentioned this before, I think, that... um, the, the cultural issues, the expectations of women's roles, men's roles, mm. the, 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 the fact that it's no longer a binary world, um, that really um, is, is a much more difficult thing for today's women to deal with. Mm. I think they approach... I mean, today's women, I, I look at them and they all seem superbly confident. But when you get to know people, they are still... Um, have doubts about their abilities, about their desires long term. Uh, they they don't find the work environment easy, mm. and that's disappointing. Yeah, and are you surprised that it's so glacial, the the progress on that front? Well, that's a good word for it, glacial. You know, 
Um, in Britain, we've actually had equal pay for equal work for a long, long time. Mm. Okay, it sometimes goes wrong, but it's pretty well adhered to. Um, but a couple of years ago, we started to measure nationally um, the gender pay gap. That's right. Mm -hmm. And were horrified to find to the extent to which women were not in the senior roles, so not earning the high salaries, but were congregating in the lower echelons of the corporate world. Um, and there are exceptions. A couple of my charities, which are in the care sector, mm -hmm. we had negative gender pay gaps, which I was very pleased about. But that's because women were, in fact, moving up into the top management and getting the high. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you have advice for other female entrepreneurs? So a lot of my listeners are women in corporations, but many of them have decided to leave their organization and go out and do their own thing. Today, what advice might you have for a female entrepreneur? My advice to a female entrepreneur is exactly the same as I would give to a man. Uh, find something that you really like and you care about, mm -hmm. that you enjoy doing. Um, get yourself trained in it and more trained so that you're really at the cutting edge of, of whatever it is that you choose to do. And then mm. just go for it. Go for it. What are you proudest of in your career when you look An back? An interesting thing that we haven't mentioned, I'm proudest really of having taken my company into co-ownership. Mm. I got a quarter of the company into the hands of the staff at no cost to anyone but me. And that made a difference to the culture. It was already a very collegiate culture, but that really... Um, brought it together and is still visible in the software group that is now owns what's left of my company. So what motivated you to do that? It's another version of giving. It mm. is, it's, again, a reciprocal thing. It, it, it's part of, a philanthropist thinks in terms of, you know, the world is not fair. Um, when I was poor, it never seemed right that other people should have so much, and, and, and I didn't. And when you have, when you're no longer in need, then you realise it, it's not fair that I have got so much. I really have to help those more in need. And um, taking a company which is very wealth creation, cr mm. creative, I mean, I became very wealthy, um, to share that with the people who've made it happen mm. seems to me only fair and right, and so I feel very comfortable about my own wealth. Yes. And what did it do to the culture of the organisation? The company had always been collegiate from right. its feminine start. Um, it finished up with um, all the teamworking, the, um, the friendship, the um, work-life balance. That was sort of part of its DNA. Um, some people would say that was feminine. Some people said my style was matriarchal. Um, once the ownership went into the hands of the staff, they became sharper and more interested mm. in the bottom line. Yes. They realized that their um, efforts could really make a difference to, to, to them and th through the the setup that we had, and also to their families. Um, so it really encapsulated um, a very informal system mm -hmm. into something, well, with, you know. Yeah, with a real edge to it. This is really edge. A real And, of course, edge. we started to do stock options and all those mm -hmm. kind of things and so on. This mm. is what finance directors do. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> once you've got them. <laughs> 
Um, at the end of your book, you say our instincts for fear, suspicion and cynicism are well developed and perhaps our instincts for trust and hope sometimes need a little encouragement. Can you expand on that when you look at the world we're working in now? It's so easy to look at the world and sort of say, oh, we've got populist um, politics all over the world. We've got um, 75 million refugees floating around the world trying to find a safe place. All these things are indeed wrong. People forget all the things that go are going right. We're living longer, we're much healthier. Um, our companies are more environmentally conscious. Um, there's all sorts of good things, and those are the ones that we have to build on. Mm. You also said in your book that your your big battle, your grand battle, you called it, has been with autism. Tell me about that battle. Well, my darling son Giles was born um, a beautiful baby. I know every mother thinks that. Um, and um, we came to, to realise that he, he was probably learning disabled. He was slow in walking, slow in talking. But then at um, about two and a half, um, something terrible happened. Um, he started, well, yeah, almost overnight, he lost the speech that he had and turned from a very placid, easy baby um, to a wild, unmanageable toddler. Mm. And um, these were not the terrible twos, this was, um, he was profoundly autistic um, and he never spoke again. And that was the beginning of a very difficult period of all our lives mm. because the autism really took over the whole family. Um, he um, finished up in hospital yeah. Um, yeah. and um, that's a polite term for asylum. He really was very, very vulnerable. But he also, of course, stimulated my first charity, because after 11 years in hospital, I became unhappy about the treatment that he was mm. getting there, and that was the only place I'd ever found for him. My company had become successful, mm. and so I decided to use that wealth to um, start a charity that would look after Giles right. and others like him. Mm -hmm. And that charity today, you know, I'm an entrepreneur, I grow things, I'm like a gardener. <laughs> um, that charity today employs 300 people, it looks after 150 people like my Chelsea, um, with profound care needs. And uh, so that was the first of my charities, I'm very yeah. proud of it. Yeah. That's a huge legacy. Tell me more about this learning to, I love the theme of letting go, you know, as a metaphor in your book, <coughs> and the notion that letting go of your money, for example, you've talked about the notion of philanthropy being quite different to charity. What has it given you? Well, the title, Let It Go, was really slightly a pun on information technology. Um, but it's actually a Buddhist concept of making sure that the rancor of the past doesn't drive your life today and tomorrow. And I needed to make that step. I needed to step away from the company. I needed to um, step away from the charities that I've set up. And so now I always, when I start a project, the aim is always to get it sustainable and then, and then back off. Yes. And that has, as a policy, has proved me well. 
proved good for me. Um, I love that that Buddhist philosophy of letting it go mm-hmm. and not letting your past contaminate your present or your future. Um, how did you manage the transition? This this organization you grew that was very much you and of you in terms of how you designed it. How did you transition away as chief executive? And how did that feel for you? It took me 11 years to replace myself as chief executive. Okay. Th- the third attempt. Um, the first one was an in-house position who had acted for me when I had been ill. Um, so she was a good bet. We knew she could do it and um, very fine person. Um, but she actually died, um, not in harness, but um, uh, she had to, she, she just couldn't cope. Um, the second appointment to chief executive was also um, an in-house appointment. And in the short term, she was fine, but she was too like me. And right. made that mistake. Mm-hmm. She was running it very much as a sort of one-person man. That wasn't what I wanted. I wanted to build up that tranche of management. I wanted to build that stability. So I then went to Headhunters, and they found me a marvellous woman um, who had done something similar in the past and who came in and um, slew a few sacred cows left, mm. right, and centre, but she really made it. She held on to the, the kernel of the company that was um, so special, um, but got rid of all the, the, the grot, okay. uh, the, the non-profitable. She focused it. She, she really was very, very good. Mm. And that transition was not pain-free for me because mm. I could see her doing things and... Um, some of them were, were sort of, um, we, we spent a long time sort of, I was trying to explain how the company worked and so on. And yes, yes, you do that, you do that. You do what? <laughs> <laughs> you know, she couldn't believe it. Couldn't believe it. <laughs> so um, it really was a, a, a fresh start. For so the, how you know. did you manage the letting go of that and enabling her to actually do what she needed to do? I went and worked internationally. Did you? Yeah. And took myself you pretty took well yourself off, off. the scene. Yes, you know, so yeah. I got my own little project. They didn't fa- they didn't succeed for many many years anyway. But uh, I, I was out of the way. Yeah. Okay. Very wise. Um, so finally, Dame Stephanie, what advice would you give to your younger self, looking back over your life and your career? I think have more faith. More faith in others, yourself. I think more faith in myself. Mm. I didn't realize that I'd got it in me. Um, I'm so, I'm a very happy person now because I am doing what is in me to do. Mm. Um, and I can look back on my achievements with, with, with pride and, and I hope not too much puff. Um, I'm surprised, I suppose, that I finished up working in the field of autism that I've got a sort of second career almost in autism, whereas mm. really I'm a computer person. Uh, I still try and behave like a, a scientist who, if yes. something works, we do more of it. If it doesn't work, we do something else. Mm. And in the research for autism, that is still, those sorts of general rules are still very helpful. Mm. So have more faith in yourself. 
great advice. Dame Stephanie Shirley, it's been such a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you for sharing your insights about your career, your life. There's absolutely no doubt that the ripples that you will send out into the world will go very far and wide. Thank you very much. Lovely to be here. Thanks for listening to Grit in the Oyster. If you're enjoying our conversations, do subscribe, rate and review us on iTunes. And stay in touch. Penny at pennydevolt.com.